so good to be back. It is so now for the the listener. This get we totally we totally just finished chapter fifteen a week ago. Absolutely, that's exactly what happened. Absolutely, it is not. Nope, short short period of time in between. Mm-hmm. No, yep. we are not Tarantinoing this. We are not. <laughs> this is not a, a months long difference. Uh, we didn't actually record chapter twenty three, and now we're going back to sixteen because no, uh, yeah, f linear storytelling. Uh, None of that. No. This is not. This is not chapter sixteen. <laughs> the sequel to chapter sixteen. <laughs> Chapter 16, too, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no. Uh, no, no, we all, yeah, it's, again, this is this is now coming to you uh, live and in and a week-to-week flow, kind of, sort of. So the current event references will be more current, um, and hopefully our, our super uh, good evaluation will be even, even tighter and better. Yes, um, yes, fantastic. Fantastic. So... Jumping in, jumping in, and chapter, chapter six, sixteen. Yep, chapter sixteen is is probably the biggest one we're going to highlight here until we get to yeah. twenty three area. Exactly. It's kind of a big one. So there's going to be chapter sixteen, and then there's going to be a lot of glossing for the most part because <laughs> the uh, the one thing we learned the last time, and I relearned this time, is that this is a lot of show your work nonsense. And if again you disagree with Marx. Come back here, and this is your punishment to get right with him. But if you're listening to this, the goal is that you didn't want to read all of this word well, for word. I still want everybody to read it if they can. It's just uh, me and David are of different opinions of that, okay. and you, we both we both love you, and and we both agree with your way of doing it. This is this is a threefold thing. We could be your cliff notes. Yep. We can be your discussion after reading, because everyone should read a few chapters at a time and discuss with a group, hopefully. Or this can be an enhancement to a group. Whatever it is, we're presenting it to you. I'm hoping it's one of the two where you read along. If it's a Cliff Notes, that's okay. Hopefully we're doing a good enough job. Yes. Whatever it is, if you don't trust Marks and don't trust us about these things, you, first off, read chapter 1 through 9, <laughs> Godspeed. And second off, read chapter 17 to 22. And that is your punishment for not listening. You should have listened. Okay. You should have if listened. If you are reading them, then Godspeed, welcome to the club, fantastic. Sorry those chapters suck, but it's good to prove. It's good. It's good. It's good. It, it, it is training. It is mental training. It's like when Batman went to the, went, I don't know, went to the thing where he got beat up by Liam Neeson for a while. You know, you got you to go through some punishment <laughs> so that you're trained to be, be able to enjoy the fully automated luxury gay space communism that we are it's, all shooting for. Is is there some weird, like, you'd merely just analyze the capitalism I was bored of <laughs> thing? Oh, I'm sure it's there somewhere. I'm it's, sure I'm sure we can there. find some way to make Bane. Bane's an anarchist. We don't like Bane. Bane is very very much an anarcho. I I will say no, I'm not I'm not against anarchists. They are they they are Oh no, they're allies. They're al- yeah, I mean they're on our side. It's not yeah. it's not like like Sokdems are bad and they veer people away from socialism. Yeah. But also they're potential socialists. Yeah, they're, Anar- they're in the right they're in the right headspace to kind of get there. Right. Anarchists are comrades who haven't really their theory is missing some realism that's going to be very painful. Yes. And then you got the communists, and we're going to get everybody there. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's on the same side. Anarchy, anarchy, when everyone talks about socialism being a fantasy, that's that's anarchists. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it is a, and it's good. It'll take you a while to get there. It's like, it is the, in my opinion, it is the liberal version of libertarianism. It is the leftist <laughs> version of libertarianism. It, it was, it's a great little fantasy theory that you think works, and it absolutely doesn't, and Atlas Shrugged sucks. Um, moving on. I've read that one. I'm not cliff noting that for you guys. No, no, no. Dear God, no, no, I'm no sorry. That ever one, have I to punished read that. myself. I am. No I literally think the that. fact that I have had to read Atlas Shrugged and then read Capital puts. I I deserve a medal because God damn it, that is two different kinds of torture. <laughs> Holy cow! So in the not torture ca- chapter of Capital, we're yes. in chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen. It's the absolute and relative surplus value. Yes. Now, we have kind of 
talked about this. This is yes, a little little review to this, you know. Um, obviously, um, we've specifically talked about all of this. Exactly this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Before. <laughs> in so exactly these ways. It's hard to remember what was covered in the early chapters uh-huh. and what was free reading chapters. Yeah, that's the other part, is if we reference <laughs> things that you never heard, those are the dark episodes, that's and those right, you'll those, never get. Those, those are gone by the wayside. They've been swallowed by the other. So. Uh, they've been swallowed by Nathan's lack of an efficient backup they've, system. They've been what swall- they they're, they're in the nothing. They're in the nothing. They're they're in the swamp of sadness with Ajax. It's they're it's, they're it's somewhere they're, they're 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 at a gazelle warehouse being stripped down for parts at this point is what they are. But that's neither here nor there. So we're gonna start off with so far the labor process is purely individual. One in the same labor unites himself all the functions that later on become separated. When an individual appropriates natural objects for his livelihood, no one controls him but himself. A single man cannot operate upon nature without calling his own muscles to play under the control of his own brain. We are not bees. We are not bees. We are not bees, and we cannot just will things into existence. We have not yet gotten to, like, Thanos level of, uh, we, we can't, like, mind control things into doing Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. But if you want to, like, you know, take some wood and go, I want to build a stool so that my kids can stand on it and brush <laughs> their teeth. Bamo, you can think about how to do that, plan it out, measure it. It's the work of your hands, but it's the work of your mind, too. And you don't need a guy standing over your shoulder going, you should do that differently. Yeah, yeah. It's not good enough. Do it faster. It's yes. None of that. Um, and we're going to skip down a little bit. We're going to say capitalist production is not merely the production of commodities. It is essentially the production of surplus value. Okay, so we were talking about a man has to take his brain and make the commodities. And that's why Mark started there. Now we're saying, well, of course you're making commodities. But you're not just making the commodities because you can make any commodity to sell to someone else. Or you can make the same objects that would be commodities for your own use. We're saying you're making the surplus value for the capitalist. So this is the labor produces not for himself, but for capital. It no longer suffices, therefore, that he should simply produce. He must produce surplus value. Mm -hmm. If we may take an example from outside the sphere of production of material objects. Please. A schoolmaster is a productive laborer when, in addition to belaboring the heads of his scholars, he works like a horse to enrich the school proprietor. The latter has laid out capital in a teaching factory instead of in a sausage factory. (laughs) (laughs) That does not alter the relation. It's so good. Yes. Hence, the notion of a productive labor implies not merely a relation of work and useful effect between the labor and its product of labor, but also a specific social relation of production, a relation that has sprung up historically and stamps the labor as the direct means of creating surplus value. To be a productive labor is therefore not a piece of luck, but a piece of misfortune. And this is impo- that is a really, really important line because this is something that I think if you were coming at this from a pure outsider angle hi justin duncan how are you um (laughs) the 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 word productive the difference between productive and unproductive labor makes it sound like well you think in your head productive labor good good productive labor no you have to strip those of their 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 kind of connotations that you think productive good unproductive bad productive labor in this context simply means that your labor produces surplus value if your labor did not produce surplus value it is unproductive value. It got exactly its value. It got exactly what it was. You provided nothing to the capitalist. Productive labor is what capitalists want. They want people that are able to reproduce their value and then some. Otherwise, you do them no good and the system collapses. Yeah, and this this fits a couple things we already talked about. First off, if you're not producing surplus value for the capitalist, why the hell would they employ you? Yeah. They're not going to do it. They're not. Uh, and secondly, it brings back the whole idea of um, socially necessary you know, labor power, yes. right? If if you're not going to be 
so as productive productive enough to be plucked out of the masses of unemployed and picked as a laborer, you're not going to be at least average of what can be plucked out of there. And they know they can pluck anyone out of there and replace you. You're going to lose that job. 100%. You know, so that's... That ties a lot of these ideas in together. It also opens up the whole idea of, you know, what everybody's kind of thinking so far in this head, you know, widgets, widgets, widgets. We're, we're doing the factory work. Well, what about I mean, America's a bunch of service industry now? Oh, my God. You so know, in, infinitely. We, there, yeah. There's almost no manu- – I mean, the manufacturing is an infinitesimally small part of our, our overall – Absolutely. What we do. But uh, truckers, uh, stockers, um, cashiers, oh. you know uh, – Custodians, tellers, tellers—that's all productive labor because mm-hmm. it produces surplus value. Yep. Okay, and it produces surplus value because it facilitates the process of exchange of commodities, mm-hmm. and every capitalist along this process is able to take surplus value, take the value of your labor above the labor power, and pocket it, and turn a certain amount into capital to exploit more labor later. That's the whole point of capitalism, to reproduce, 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 mm-hmm. and also to survive on it and not have to labor beside and, you. Although they have that option that doesn't stop them from being a capitalist because they're no. still pocketing capital off of your labor yep. to exploit others later. Yep. And again, this is, it doesn't mean that if you, were a, if you were at home and you were completely self-sufficient off the grid and you farmed for yourself and you built your own furniture and you built, made your own clothes that you're unproductive. It just means in the definition of capitalism, you are not a productive laborer for the capitalist system. That's yeah. all we're talking about. Absolutely. So he says, the prolongation of the working day beyond the point at which the laborer would have produced just an equivalent of the value of his labor power and the appropriation of that surplus labor by capital, this is production of absolute surplus value. So he's establishing what's absolute versus relative. And we have, again, talked about this. Mm-hmm. Absolute is essentially time. Yes. Right? I mean, if you if you reproduce your labor value in six hours, but you work for 12 hours, that's six hours of absolute surplus value. Whereas relative is going to be the rate of surplus value. And absolute, it's a good name that marks it up because absolute is lasting. You know, I mean, six hours of work is six hours of work is six hours of work. As long as it's, you know, at least socially... Socially necessary. Of socially necessary labor. Again, we're we're extrapolating. Which averages out to, there'll be some below, some above. As long as you're not so far below that you're noticeable and replaced. Exactly. You're you're fitting that. But it's socially necessary labor power because we're we're doing congealed masses of labor. Um, Whereas relative, that's going to be, you're more efficient than the person next to you and that's not going to last because then all of a sudden the value of that labor is going to adjust and that's usually going to come in from what we just talked about in chapter 15 15. for three hours straight (laughs) these machines Machines. these these booms these booms you know these capitalists are racing for these little temporary advantage now you have the innovative machine so you can outproduce everybody else for like seven years but in seven years that becomes the average machine well now all that value is gone but you produced enough capital in that seven years that you can turn around and you just can exploit more absolute surplus value because you just have a fuck ton more capital to exploit more people, and then you're looking for that relative surplus value again. Again Again and again, and it just never, never, ever stops. And so Marx continues, it forms the general groundwork of the capitalist system and the starting point of production of relative surplus value. So, I mean, absolute surplus value is the base of everything. Yes. Uh, Then he goes down a paragraph and says, it will suffice merely to refer to certain intermediate forms in which the surplus labor is not extorted by direct compulsion for the producer, nor the producer himself yet formally subjected to capital. In such forms, capital has not yet acquired the direct control of the labor process by the side of an independent producers who carry on their own handicrafts and agriculture in the traditional old-fashioned way. There stands the usurer or the merchant, with his (laughs) usurer's capital or his merchant's capital, feeding on them like a parasite. 
And this is again, this is a good a good point because this is one of the few times in this in these next couple sections that he's going to mention things like merchant capital or usurers or let's let's call usurers capital what it is, finance capital. Yeah. Finance capital yeah. is what that actually is. Yeah. Um and 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 in the next couple, as we're going through this little experiment, Marx kind of assumes that those two don't exist. He, he talks about them as if, because again, we're playing by the perfect system rules. It's a closed system, no outside trade, no finance capital, no merchant capital, none of that. Um, and, and so bringing them up here is is important because again, they are a key part of this system. And he was going to get to them in, in section four or volume four, uh, which obviously we didn't get. Yeah, now we are playing by the rules here. And again, he doesn't get into them because he was going to get into volume four before he passed away before finishing it. But it's important that he mentions them because that's not actually breaking any rules. That fits within the rules. 100%. You know, I mean, this merchant's capital can happen. And this merchant's capital is, you know, the same thing. It's a separate exploitation. Um, it's an exploitation. You use capital <laughs> to go on other people's labor. And so what they're doing is instead of exploiting you directly as the... Um, uh, proletarian, mm -hmm. these these finance capital are going to have this loan, use this capital against the capitalist. Okay, so now the capitalist has enough capital to say, hey, I have $20,000 in capital, and that makes this user say I can have 120 if I pay him back a huge percentage on this, you know, other 100, and I, I throw my 20 down. Okay, well, now he's 120 to exploit you on. Well, that huge percentage means that out of that 120, he's probably exploiting you with $90,000 you know, of capital, which is way better than the 20000 He's better off. But then that other 30000 you're being exploited all the way up to the merchant. Yeah. And just like the capitalist, you know, maybe you have a labor power that's six hours and, and he's only getting three hours worth of your labor power. It seems like, oh, he's only making half as much as you, but he does it to a thousand people and all of a sudden he's making, you know, 500 times as much as you for not doing shit. The user is the same way. They're making even more than the capitalists. Yeah. And they're controlling the capitalists yeah. and you. They figured it out. They, the, the, yeah. usurers, the usurers got this shit down. They have, they have figured out the, the fun glitch in the system and they are exploiting it to their best. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, big, nasty IMF, World Bank, just very, very... Yeah. Terrible, terrible things, and we'll yeah. get into imperialism. We'll have to oh. get imperialism. We'll actually kind of lightly bring it up a little later in this chapter. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't. I, I forgot. Yeah. Um, the other big thing is, and again, this is when we say that Marx was going to get to this in Volume Four. That that's not like hypothesis. In the Marx specifically says, and we will deal with this. About, he already knew how this all worked and had it ready to go. This is not yeah, like he had us. Four volumes laid out. He didn't write the last. Yeah, I'm about to say the last two are just skeletal form. He knew exactly how this was going to go out. This wasn't him yeah. making it up as he went and saying, yeah. "We'll get to that later." Which is what helped Engels finish volume three, exactly. but unfortunately didn't let him completely write volume four. No. Uh, so we're going to continue on. He says the predominance in a society of this form of exploitation excludes the capitalist mode of production. To which mode, however, this form may serve as a transition, as it did towards the close of the Middle Ages. So he's talking mm -hmm. about this is kind of how we got capitalism was mm -hmm. a big part from merchants' capital. Yep, Feudal, uh, the, the you know feudalism and yeah. mercantilism and all that kind of that slow transit. You know the times before capitalism, since it hasn't always existed as a natural way of life. Yeah, yeah, and it comes from a couple things, and we'll get into the the other thing it comes from, which is colonialism. We'll talk about that in a second here. Oh yeah. Uh, but colonialism and merchants' capital are really what gave us. Capitalism really gave us liberalism, and and we'll talk about that in a bit here. There's some really, really good things, and we're going to continue on here. He says, finally, as shown in the modern domestic industry, and now there's a couple ways you can use domestic industry, and you've seen in Marxist text. We're not talking about women at home, or it doesn't have to be women, but it traditionally has been, someone at home doing the work so you can go out and make money, and that's domestic labor. We're talking about sweatshops. Yeah. 
Yeah. So he says, domestic industry, some intermediate forms are here and there reproduced in the background of modern industry. And he says, if on the one hand, the mere formal subjection of labor to capital suffices the production of absolute surplus value, if it is sufficient that handicraftsmen who previously worked on their own account or as apprentices to a master should become wage labor under the direct control of a capitalist. So on the other hand, we've seen how the methods of producing relative surplus value are at the same time methods of producing absolute surplus value. Mm -hmm. You get this machine that makes more relative surplus value because everyone's more efficient. Well, now you're taking away competition. You're taking away the, the you know, the watchmaker can't keep up with the watchmaking factory, uh, things like that. And so you're really creating more absolute surplus value. And that's what we're talking about. You know, I mean, you have this relative surplus value, you have a short amount of time, but you're really banking capital for later. They're also banking capital as a class because capital is yes. truly power when you get down to this. And, and they're really going, and we'll get into that in some later chapters too. Uh, but, yeah. but um, you know, they're really banking your inability to be distinguishable from anybody yeah. else. They're breaking skill labor. The longer they, again, and the, the, real, the real way to look at this, they use relative surplus value, which is lengthening the time, increasing the intensity. And he's about to go to all, we're about to list all of these, but this is, it's kind of weird that he talks about, because I think it's important to understand the relative surplus value part to understand what he's saying here. They're going to use all those little tricks to slowly but surely push out Anyone that isn't a pure capitalist, all the independent guys and all the little mom and pop shops and all that kind of stuff. They're going to slowly push those guys out. And as a direct result, those people become wage laborers, which directly means you have more absolute value, absolute value. End of the t end of the day, you're, you're, you're constantly going to use your, your exploit, exploitative means to push all your competition down and all of your other ways out so that all that people are left is, oh, hello. <laughs> you yeah. only have people left as wage laborers. And you also have another aspect, which you'll get in a second with the next sentence, yeah. which is that with these innovations, you can also work longer hours. So we're going to say, nay, more the excessive prolongation of the working day turned out to be the peculiar product of modern industry. So he's mm -hmm. talking about, you know, I mean, now factories, instead of being working eight hours and then, oh, we ran out of light, you've got lights and machines with more energy. You could turn poor people over. Now you can actually prolong the working day. Uh and this is also when you say prolong the working day it's also it's 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 a little more subtle stuff too because it's not just yeah. the lights are on you can work longer it's oh we've made it this machine's made it so much easier even a child can run it this is we're not breaking your back anymore so so your labor's gonna get easier yeah you're gonna do it for 12 hours now though you're gonna do it for longer you're gonna not take your break you're gonna get fed at the station where you can keep this, this making the widgets just let your lunch breaks go quicker so you can eat faster uh-huh we're gonna get uh -huh. food right to you directly squeezable into your mouth yes, pouches right. food pouches <laughs> Says generally speaking, the speci uh, specifically capitalist mode of production ceases to be a mere means of producing relative surplus value so soon as that mode has conquered an entire branch of production. We're talking about monopolies here, of course. Yep. And still more, so soon as it's conquered all the important branches, it then becomes a general, socially predominant form of production. As a special method of producing relative surplus value, it remains effective only first insofar as it seizes upon industries that previously were only formally subject to capital. That is, so far as it is propagandist, second insofar as the industries have been taken over by it, continue to be revolutionized by changes in the method of production. 
and we're already at that point. This oh, is yeah. this, we are far. So again, Marx was talking about like in the few like at a certain point you will get to. The, we're there. We're past that. He, we're, we're, we're we're knee deep we're in it. So now we're seizing industries, and this is the whole. Um, the, the app idea, you know, now we're going back and we're privatizing things. Yeah. Oh, we need charter schools. Yeah. Oh, we're oh. going to have this revolutionary Uber bus, but we're not going to call it a bus. No, no, no. You no, know, the, the, the Elon Musk tunnel for one car, the subway for one person at a time. Right. This and innovation. Nestle, probably the most horrible non-weapons manufacturing company in the world, makes... Everything, Everything from clothes to baby formula to food. That's so. It's so funny because chocolate I, to bottled water. To I literally went through this with my wife today. It's the shampoo. list of things. Yeah, the list of things that they that they are literally touching. So like frozen pizza. Just take frozen pizza for example. Shit. They, California frozen California kitchen. DiGiorno. DiGiorno Jacks. Yeah. And Tombstone. So four of like the five. If you don't want to, like, kept kept competitors. Yeah, and that's what I was. That's what it came up today. Is yeah. So you you, we have this great illusion that oh, there's so many options. If I don't like this, I'll choose this. Four of the five. I have to pick the Baron. I have to go with the World War One flying German man if I don't want to be supporting Nestle directly. Yeah, or some small company making frozen pizza. Well, yeah, but they don't fucking get to the Walmart because we live in a food desert. Goddamn it! Come well, on. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, we we got issues, but no, it's again, it's, it's crazy. L'Oreal, they, everything that L'Oreal makes, yes. they have a high end in. Everything that Maybelline, Lancome, I mean, just the sheer. Scope of how much their fingers are Purina in everything. Purina and all that shit. Purina, Nestle, all of that, and then they, and then all these subsidiaries of Purina that they don't say are it, below Purina, but they hide that so that it just makes it seem. I mean, literally, if you wanted to, if you thought Nestle was evil and you wanted to completely divest yourself of them, it's speed. Good luck. You should you, still try. Everyone you, should try. You should try. For God's sake. When try. it is, I'm about to say when it is there. But, you know, no, but they've made it again. They've this made is, it nearly impossible. And yeah. that is again, that's what. Marx is talking about here. The more that they kind of weed their way in, the more they're just going to become well, and completely... Well, he mentioned it being propagandists. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, they pretend to be each other's competitors. Oh, uh-huh. they, they win you over with marketing. You know, oh, we fixed the... We may have let all the customer accounts be hacked, but now we're leading in security. You know, I mean, he kind of... I, I don't know how directly he meant that with propagandists. He probably didn't see that details coming, but he saw this stuff coming because he saw it in some markets. Mm-hmm. And he was a materialist. Yep. You know, I mean, it's and it's amazing how acutely aware he was. And that's why, you know, we don't see Marx as a soothsayer or someone that no. had it all perfectly figured out. We, we trust Marx because he was right. Yeah. But he was so right because he paid so much fucking attention. And, it kept... and you see all these things come true because he saw them coming because he saw, he, he paid attention. He looked. He looked. He, he wasn't looked just. He wasn't just hypothesizing. This is why we're materialists. He wasn't sitting in a cave somewhere hypothesizing. Like yeah. it was. It was there. He looked at the shit. You know. I mean, the other company that's like that is uh, Coca Cola. Coca Cola is a horrible, oh, horrible colonial yeah. hi- hi- history. Which you can get into that. Um, I, I can't think of the the, the indigenous person. Uh, she goes by the English name of Danny, and she has a, a little blog there. Um, she was cited in the Groundings podcast. Another good one. Uh, Groundings podcast with. Uh, Devin Springer. Um, but anyway, you know, she was talking about how her father said you can't escape Coca-Cola. And she was listing the brands and it's like, holy crap, everything is Coke. Yeah. Everything is Coke, you know. Yeah. So except the stuff that's Pepsi. Except the stuff that's Pepsi. And then it's Pepsi. And then it's Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. But again, uh, it's two. It's two of them. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's, ten. It's like ten companies total, and you're I, fucked. I, I hope the Pistachio Wars uh, special comes out very soon. Oh, yeah, well, I think Yasha Levine did a lot of good work there, from what I've seen from the previews and the talks. Yeah, and but it's amazing what what goes back to that wonderful company. And if you want the Fiji to CG water, the wonderful. If pistachios, you want a, if you want a, if you want a, oranges. If you want to kind of spoil yourself for that documentary that's coming up, that's going to be fantastic. But you want to get yourself ready for the rage. Uh, at my my favorite plug in the history of time, the dollop did just that. Just so did, was very good. By did the way. a uh, yeah. They also did a good HW Bush hundred. Oh yes, I, they did. Oh no, I, I have my issues with the dollop, but overall they're pretty good. They're, they've got some good episodes lately. D- David does. Nathan has no issues with the dollop. I, I have the several. Dollop. I could list them. We could do a whole half. We hour could, but we're not. I love you, Dave. Don't yeah, okay. don't come at me on Twitter. Okay, okay. Love yeah. you, Dave. <laughs> All right. So he says, Mark goes on. He says, thus we may say the surplus value rests on the natural basis, but is permissible only in the very general sense that there is no natural obstacle absolutely preventing one man from disburdening himself of the labor requisite for his own existence and burdening another with it any more for instance than an unconquerable natural obstacle prevent one man from eating the flesh of another so I mean this is where he's talking about and and this is where I I think this is the kind of thing that ropes people into egoism which god don't do ever do egoism don't do that guys that's individual shit it's horrible friends don't let friends go (laughs) no no because you reach Sterner and he like he's like oh that's right oh that's right and so he gets you like 90% there and you're just nodding your head you're like god this guy's a genius and it just goes off the fucking map for the last 10% and half the people that read it go yeah this guy sucks and the other te- half people go yeah the last 10% must be right too the first 90 worked <laughs> but this is this is Mark's doing that that first 90% of Sterner here he's like look people just don't have this natural like subjugation like you have to work for me because it has been seized upon the heavens that yeah. that you know I am in charge right like you have to do that by force yep you know, he's he's pointing out that capital is force. And we're going to get there much deeper in when we get to primitive accumulation, yes. which is coming. We will yes. very much dive deep into that concept. Yes. And so he says, no mystical ideas must in any way be connected, as sometimes happens, with this historically developed productiveness of labor. It is only after men raise themselves above the rank of animals, when therefore their labor has been to some extent socialized, that a state of things arises in which the surplus labor of one becomes a condition of existence from another. At the dawn of civilization, the productiveness acquired by labor is small, but so too are the ones that develop and by the means of satisfying them. Further, that the early period, the portion of society that lives on the labor of others, is infinitely small compared to the masses of direct producers. Along with the progress and the productiveness of labor, that small portion of society increases both absolutely and relatively. Besides the capital with its accompanying relations springs up from an economic soil, that this product of a long process of development, this productiveness of labor that serves as its foundation as a starting point, is a gift not of nature, but of a history embracing thousands of centuries. So he's saying, you know, this capitalism isn't natural. No. He's not natural. No. <laughs> it's, it's taken thousands and thousands of years, and he's going to start walking through some of these epochs, through some of mm-hmm. these these constructions. In fact, I didn't highlight this next chapter, but I really feel like I should read it. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to get into some things, Mark's details, and we're going to get into something that's a little deeper, and I'll touch back on on chapter 33 and on some later books. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of just want to throw out there because it feels 
weirdly timely because of some of the recent you know events out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to say, apart from the degree of development, greater or less in the form of social production, the productiveness of labor is fettered by physical conditions. These are all referable to the produ- uh, to the constitution of man himself, you know, race, whatever, and surrounding nature. Um, so this is saying constitution of man himself is, you know, social construction. Yeah. Things things that, that people create that now suddenly have value. You know, gender is a social construct. But that doesn't mean it means nothing. No. It means that it was completely made up yeah. to mean something to serve someone. But now it's very real and we have to deal with that and remedy that yeah. in order to undo that. Exactly. And, um, you know, for people who aren't familiar with uh, things like an indigenous culture, uh, not every tribe. Obviously, tribes are very, very different oh nations. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can't, can't, can't broad stroke yeah, they're indigenous not, They're culture. not a monolith. But no. uh, several tribes had an idea of what was called two spirits. Okay, there was the the physical spirit, and there was the spirit of like your feelings and your actions. I really would like an indigenous person to explain this a little better. Than yeah, me, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But to give you an idea, just just to throw this out there that for people who don't understand, gender is a social construct, and so they would they would see you know kids grow up and they would dress the same way and act the same way until like their teenage years, and then depending on the the tribe and their beliefs there would be between four and six genders mm-hmm. if you that. want if you want a completely unproblematic way to look at this uh hey nerds out there y'all play uh starfinder right yeah you do because you're nerds and you play role-playing games uh in starfinder there's a race called the lashunta and the lashunta literally have no race until about age 13 and then they pick basically based on how they've evolved and how they've decided to live their life uh one of two or a mix of their races and you can kind of put them all together and come out as is whatever you you've decided you want to be because your life experiences determine who you are, not some generic biological boom. You are this, and this is what you're going to be because this is X and Y's, and there's no black and white here. Yeah. Um, and there is absolutely no problematics with the Lashuntas, uh, everybody. If you all want to listen to the Glass Cannon podcast for more of that, get on it. Get on it. Hey, Troy, hit me up. Yeah, um, and of course, a race is a, is a social construct. We know that because it's changed over time. Yeah, you know, I mean, we have a very different concept of white than what was around in the 1800s. Well, know? and even more than that, you've uh, got, I mean, so many examples of of you know a person being ra- a person who is genetically white or genetically black being raised in a different culture, and all of a sudden, oh, boom, everything's yeah. different. Yeah, it's I a mean, so, it's a social be, construct, plain and simple. Yeah, totally. If you don't see that, you're I don't know how to help you. Yeah. Um, but the other thing he's saying is, besides these social constructs, which, it, this is a little bit about the base and the superstructure, okay? Yeah. So the base is created, and that's what he's talking about, nature around them. The base is created from their surroundings and then from the epochs that have come from it. Yeah. So, like, Europe's very temperate. Yeah. So it started off with a lot of food and, and things, plentifulness, but it's things once you started farming and tilling because it had a lot of different climates, it was not able to just naturally sustain itself from just unbelievable climate that was there in the Middle East and North Africa and, you know, the, the um, Caribbean, you know, all those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so Europe started kind of branching out and conquering for the productiveness they used to have yep. before it got ruined by, you know, mankind going about it. And so there's this very white supremacist contract of like, there's this nature, this untouched nature, which of course erases indigenous people. Yeah. And it's, it's horribly genocidal. But it also is this idea that everything is Europe. There's this untouched nature, and once man touches it, it ruins it. Only the climate of Europe yeah. is that true. It's, the rest of the world, that's not true. I think someone it's, did, it's was, incredibly white centric. Was it prol was it was it proles that did did that where they basically the galaxy brain the concept oh, of he nature was right. he was the right. concept of nature is yeah. white supremacist hey, yeah long before proles brought that up that's been something that's gone around uh, but indigenous people have have been saying that for a long time because they've been right they yeah. see that you know i mean national parks national parks are used to 
move out sovereign people. Yep. You know, I mean, not to preserve nature. There's no, no. fucking such thing as nature. People no. live in nature for God Ever. knows thousands of years. And the concept yeah. of calling it that just means we haven't got around to exploiting it yet. So yes. now boom. you can call things natural. Yeah. And you can say there are different natures in different regions. Yes. But there's not like unbridled, untouched nature, pristine yeah. nature. That's not a thing. Yeah. When we talk about the Amazon, is it's, oh, it's natural. It's like ah, there's indigenous people living in uh-huh. it right now. There's people there. And, and they're about to get fucking genocided uh, by uh, fascists, and we need to do everything we can uh, to stop but that. But the economist said he has some good ideas. Yeah. No. No. I'm gonna smack some good you. I- I'm going he to has smack some good you. Ideas. I'm going to smack you. The economist is I'm great. Going, we're moving on. We're moving on. <laughs> All right. So anyway, the external physical conditions fall into two great economic classes. Natural wealth of uh, natural wealth of means of subsistence, a fruitful soil, water teeming with fish, yep. blah, blah, blah. This is what I was talking about, like Egypt. And, yeah. da, da, da. and natural wealth in the instruments of labor, such as waterfalls, navigable rivers, wood, metal, coal. At the dawn of civilization, it is the first class that turns the scale. At a higher stage of development, it is the second class. This is, if you stopped right there... This is Jared Diamond level history. This is this is. Hey guys, it's just your natural conditions that determine your life. It is. Yeah. It's just that. Just that. That's all it is. Guns, germs, and steel. I've summarized it for you. You don't have to read it uh, because it's hot trash. Yeah. Um, don't don't read don't, Jared Diamond. No. Um, but uh, yeah, that's. But that, again, at the beginning, but it's a starter pack. But again, that's at the beginning. Yeah, of course, your natural surroundings dictate things for to a certain extent yeah. and to a greater extent based on your level of development of course that's just common sense yeah I mean, but that's... then other things come into play yeah and and going back to europe something that marx didn't even touch on here marx does a good job of touching on you know egyptians and english people and all that stuff and how you know the europeans would, would branch out and conquer and the the egyptians would Let's go to the Egyptian. Let's go to Uh, the Egyptian. So he says, Nevertheless, the grand structures of ancient Egypt are less to the extent of its population than to the large proportion of it that was freely disposable. Just as the individual laborer can do more surplus labor in proportion to his necessary labor time, so with regard to the working population, the smaller the part of which is required for production of the necessary means of subsistence, so much the greater part can be set to do other work. Egyptians had this wonderful... It was the Nile River. It was just the most fertile thing in the history of of all time. Yep. And so they turn around and they went, we have all this extra time. We're a teeming, you know, society. We have these, they had complex sciences. We don't have they to had, go outside. We don't have to conquer. We don't have to go outside our our our, our home yeah. to get the things we need. So what are we going to do with our free time? Hey! Yeah, and so, I mean, different cultures did different things. Like, the Babylonians mm-hmm. um, had uh, the Fertile Crescent, yep. and they, they launched that into just being insanely good mathematicians, just beyond our comfort. There were still still the, the advances we've made in mathematics since then yeah. compared to what they made in Babylon. Oh, yeah, no. It's we're, just We're nothing. We're, we're not even mo- we're not moving the ball. We have not gotten close to a first just, down on that just, day. And, I mean, we've figured out that there are space waves that tell us where planets are. The rate of, of increase of mathematical knowledge is still completely nothing compared to no, what was done in Babylon. Egypt, they took all of that time. They, they created very good sciences, nowhere near Babylonian math, but good math, very good yeah. ge- geometric math. And they, they turned that into, you know, giant, giant, you know, the, the pyramids, the sphinx. No, the, no, no, that was aliens. 
That's, that I was aliens. I'm going to slap that you. That was again. aliens. I'm just going to slap you. Brown people just, couldn't have possibly done that. There weren't white I've, people there yet. It had to be aliens. Yes. You, that, the sarcasm is hard to detect in the microphone. Okay. Guys, slap. that's heavily sarcastic. I, uh, the, anyone who anyone who promotes ancient alien theories about stuff, uh, if you ever noticed, 99.9% of the time, it's not about stuff that white folk tend to have made. It's all about these other cultures that couldn't possibly have had any sort of skill or ability yeah. or knowledge. It had to be aliens. Also, something, you know, Marx didn't talk about, but uh, it's the same kind of idea. You know, the Mayans. Oh, yeah. The Aztecs. You know, I mean, same kind of thing. They, they were brilliant at, you know, uh, calendars. The yeah. Mayan calendar went to, like, 2012. I think it was a farming calendar. Yep. And it was accurate till 2012. Yep. And we all assumed the world was going to end because they yep. stopped writing Quetzalcoatl, the Quetzalcoatl was going to come and eat us all. <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just, it's it's insane how, how good... People can do things, and, and these indigenous cultures just wiped out in our own backyard. Cahokia, yeah. the Cahokia, the mound build. I mean, oh, again, yeah. the, the the structures that these people built that have survived to today. Yeah, I mean, just just absolutely incredible. Way way better than anything we do because they had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. They they had fertile lands, and they weren't out trying to conquer everything out. They weren't making this weird jingoistic like paraphrases like policing the world and oh, and you know d- displacing despots yeah. and you know bombing everyone else. They were just making incredible things. No, that is not to say that everything was perfect. Again, they no. would sacrifice people to the sun god for shits and grins. Again, we had we, I had, don't, we had I, areas to improve. I don't I don't think their religious killings comes anywhere near Europe. Uh, exactly though. But that's what I'm saying. Is again, we're not trying to gloss over things. Everyone has their warts. I mean, you 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 go with you go with the sun god sacrifices and then you look at the Spanish Inquisition. Ah, nobody expects the killed. Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish. You tell me which one killed more people. Uh, uh touche. Okay. Touche. So anyway, um, suppose now such an Eastern bread cutter requires 12 working hours a week for the satisfaction of all his wants. Nature's direct gift to him is plenty of leisure time. Before he can apply this leisure time productively for himself, a whole series of historical events is required. Before he spends it in surplus value for strangers, compulsion is necessary. Here's yep. the, the violence. Yep. And again, Egypt, man, Egypt had a lot of free time to do stuff. They also had slaves. Yeah, yeah, that'd be the They also had, they had a couple they, slaves. Yeah. One or two slaves. Yeah, uh, but a lot of, I mean, that was all the old cultures did that. Well, I know, and, and, the and Romans did this, that. Yeah. I, no, everyone. everyone had slaves, and that was bad. We're not saying that they were the pinnacle of human civilization. No, no. No, and, and thank God at least the slaves then were, were more like a, a feudal serf than like chattel slavery. Yeah, yeah, they still yeah. they still they still threw a lot of bones into that pyramid. Sure, that was a sure. lot of bones in the pyramids. The, the, I think it, I'm pretty sure that the historians have said the Egyptians made the pyramids and the the bones were like making the food so the Egyptians go make the pyramids. Ah, you know. It's still the same. Well, yeah. Bones, okay. pyramids, it's all there. Okay. So anyway, uh leisure time for himself. A whole series of historical events is required before he spends it on on uh, strangers' compulsion is necessary. If capitalist production were introduced, the honest fellow would perhaps have to work six days a week in order to appropriate to himself the product of one working day. The bounty of nature does not explain why he would have to work six days a week or why he must finish five days of surplus labor. It explains only why his necessary labor time will be limited to one day a week. In no case would his surplus labor... Uh, product arise from the occult quality inherent in human labor. Again, Marx is going after this capitalism is natural bullshit. And we're going to name exactly who he's citing. He says, Ricardo never concerns himself with the origin of surplus value. He treats it as a thing inherent in the capitalist mode of production, which mode in his eyes is the natural form of social production. Whenever he discusses the productiveness of labor, he seeks in it not the cause of surplus value, but the cause that determines the magnitude of surplus value. Kind of missed a step, is yeah, what Marx is saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, that's Marx. And the, and we get to, again, we're going to get to this improvement of accumulation. Marx kind of goes, hey, hey, guys, you, you 
you kind of went to steps three, four, and five to explain why capitalism was great. You never explained step one. Yeah. <laughs> you can't explain step one. One of you tried, and you all beat him to death with sticks. Um, basically, the, the the historical equivalent of it. You just brushed him under the table. But we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, he does some quotes by Mill. I I think I'm gonna oh, wrap up chapter yeah, six. Yes, yes. We we have we've got this is the again that we've got the real good foundation of of chapter sixteen, which is the difference between absolute and surplus value and how that kind of progresses throughout time. Yeah. And then you've got the historical grounding to to explain how this happened and how yeah. how societies have gotten to where they are. Yeah, base now, superstructure. Something. Yeah, and, and the base. The, let's that that's what I want to reveal right at the end of chapter sixteen. So he's talking about. You know, um, the colonialism and, yes. and these different societies and why Europe had had to branch out, essentially. Um, and so there's this idea in Marxism. And it, there's not like a book where you go and you go to, like, say, chapter 15, page 12, and here Marx explains based on superstructure. It's, it's a concept that's peppered throughout Marx's work. Yeah. And every Marxist understands it because Ooh. anyone who reads enough Marx gets it all put together for them. And anyone who doesn't usually talks to someone who puts together the base and superstructure. And so you see different, you know, animations of it. But it's the same idea. There's an economic base. Mm -hmm. And the economic base creates the superstructure, the culture, the yes. laws, the government, everything like that. The economic base creates. And then that superstructure can revolutionize, okay? It's dialectic materialism. There's dialectic battle. And say a dialectic comes in to win for a new economic superstructure to liberate someone from the old yeah. economic, from the old superstructure. These, these, these massive changes base. in epochs. These uh -huh. massive changes in how society was structured. So you alter the economic base and then you get a new superstructure right. based on that base and the previous superstructure, yeah. but it has more to do in Marx's mind with the economic base. The material conditions are defining our, how, how our, we're going about it. It's not just history said we're doing this, so we're doing this. Yeah, and there's some other Marxists who have come along and said, well, Marx didn't do enough to emphasize the superstructure. Maybe he didn't. You know, that's fair. I mean, we've learned from Marx. He gave us dialectic materialism. And we've never said that this is the end, that we've got, that it's 100% figured out, it's a math formula, and you add these up, and you get you get yeah. how society runs. Again, we have, you have to kind of look into the world and... and Again, we're materialists. You look at what's happening, and you apply. If, if the if the analysis doesn't fit that, you change the analysis. adapt your analysis. Change. Yeah. yeah, you update it. You update it. And You don't throw the baby out of the bathwater no. unless what you see in the world says the old analysis was bad, yes. which we're yet to do from anything from Marx's no, perspective. No, no. In spite of what a lot of everybody says all the time. Holy uh, yeah, shit! Yeah, we really have not. USSR. Seen the wall came down. Communism failed. Marx yeah. is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No. I just, Fucking Jesus. Khrushchev. Yeah. So anyway, um, but um, you know, so it, if we see something else, we we either throw out any analysis that was bad, which I mean, we haven't really done with Marx, we haven't seen that, nope. or we adapt the analysis to it, which is is very very good, and that's where you see you know things like Marx's Leninism, that's where you see you know Mao Zedong thought, that's where you see Franz Fanon's is Franz Fanon, is that's where his name Franz Fanon. Oh, I'm, I'm nope, I'm not there yet. Okay. <laughs> nope, about on that one. I, 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 I will get us, there. We'll get there. I plan on us reading Fanon. Gramsci, all of these. Yeah, Gramsci. I mean, there's people updating this, this, yeah. you know, adapting it, and maybe they're just adapting it to their own situation because they're usually writing it to their own people. And that's relevant because um, again, when Marx was talking about Marx, was analyzing England. He yeah. wasn't analyzing Italy. He wasn't analyzing South America. He was. I mean, again, yeah. it's important for these people to be able to say, and here's how our material conditions are, and this is how our Marxism is going to yeah. be. Yeah. So it's either people, at, you know, writing about it for their own conditions, or they write about it for their own conditions. They. It, you know, create something new that adds on to Marxism. And that doesn't mean a new 
ism. You know, no. New ism has to be a whole overarching thought no. that's applicable across the board. But it could be new insight. You know, there's yeah. tons of, I mean, there's people that believe there's a Maoism, and there's people that believe Mao is just a Marxist-Leninist that has a lot of things that contributed to Marxist-Leninism that we should understand. Um, you know, I mean, when I talk about Fanon, you know, I mean, that's there's no Fanon-ism. Ism. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, Fanon was a, a phenomenon. But anyway, uh, you know, he's a Marxist Leninist that, that has contributions to, to things to make us understand colonialism and decolonization much, much better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, these are things that you see and you learn and adapt. You Voltron all of these together and you get super Marxism. Yeah. That's what we're all here for. And so everybody has this idea and they've kind of gotten it is, is capitalism is the base and yes. the rest of this is superstructure. Yes. Okay. And one thing I'm going to put forward, based on recent events, and Ooh. based on what I want to read, and based on some of the history I've learned recently, okay. is, um, and I'm just going to just just gently throw it out there. Ooh, okay. Okay. Just the tip. A little this bit. Just the, ooh, just the radical, all, all, all the radical, right hair. radical David editorialism. Okay. Is is people think of misogyny and and white supremacy mm-hmm. as part of the superstructure, even though they you know obviously cleared it to capitalism because it's the superstructure of capitalism. You think they're the they're, base? I think they're part of the base. Interesting. I think they're part of the base. And, I, and the other thing sitting in the base there, and maybe I'm saying something that's already been said by like 10 philosophers that we're going to read later. Probably. You know, I mean, it's like, again, you know, I've mentioned, I, I, I've heard people say good things about like, you know, decolonization about like Fanon and Walter Rodney. Maybe we're going to read one of them and they say this. But I, I, I feel the more I'm learning that, that capitalism, and this doesn't make capitalism not the base. No, no, no. Capitalism is still the base. But to complete the base, you have to understand is capitalism and misogyny and white, white supremacy. supremacy. And that all ties together with the the, the thing that, that bore capitalism out of it that have circled back into imperialism. And that's why capitalism does circle back to imperialism. Yeah. Sort of. Lenin explains that a little bit better. Is is colonialism. Is it still yes. all colonialism. And, colon- and honestly, that would be... I think that may be the bigger... One of the bigger things, I mean, the white supremacy you can just lump into, I mean, colonialism has to be part of the base. That that, that whole yeah. the imperialism, all of that is baked into but, the base level of how we understand the world at this point. Right, but you have to believe in a very sanitized capitalism for you not to think that that's part of the base of, of capitalism, too. I mean, Touché. that's necessary Touché. for capitalism. Touché. So, so you can extrapolate, again, you can pick them apart and, and build them all. But yeah. again, understanding base and superstructure is super, super important, and I'm glad we did touch on that right there. Yeah, but that's David thinking he's original, saying something that's probably been said by a bunch of people. There's our editorial well, no, but that's, that's going to get back to Marx. And that's the glory of but that is, oh, no, but that is the glory of Marxist analysis. Is, is Most of the time, when you build all these parts, you see where it's going. And yeah, probably some, some really high-level you know, uh, thinkers have gotten there, but the whole goal of Marxism is that you can explain it to anybody and they'll keep being able to take it themselves. You you don't need it's a science. You don't need this spoon fed to you. Once you kind of give people the tools to analyze to, to make this analysis, they're gonna go you, you look at look at what Ho Chi Minh did in Vietnam. Look yeah. at the they were taking illiterate people and reading to them while they're getting bombed out. Mark, you know, Marxism and materialism and in the dialectic, and they got it, and they were able to take it and run with it, and then yeah. d- d- defeat a giant superpower because, yeah, f- fuck yeah, let's go, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. Um, but that that was a good, and I think that's a good end to, to because we're about to get it's about to get a little nitty gritty. Changes the magnitude of the price of labor power and in surplus value. Hey guys, get ready for a lot of glossing. Yes. Da, 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 da. Uh, honestly, he's taking a lot of. 
situations and we'll we'll name them. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing I want to touch on, he's doing some theoreticals, and he's doing some theoreticals because he has to directly address Ricardo. Yes. Okay. So if you're not into Ricardo, this chapter is probably unnecessary. It's a really, really approving chapter more than the it other is. ones. But there is a very big overarching theme here that I do think is important to take away. I think Honestly, in this chapter, I think we can read kind of the introduction. And then I think just reading literally the, the tops, like the headers, yeah. is the best way to understand this chapter. Well, and I want to read the intro. And I want to read the intro sure. because it, 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 it says some things that, you know, he says should be, you know, essentially should be obviously should true be by obvious. now. But I want to reiterate them. For okay. sure. Because so that's what he, we do. This book is nothing if not reiteration. That's right. So he starts off, he says, The value of labor power is determined by the value of necessaries of life habitually required by the wage laborer. Mm -hmm. The quantity of these necessaries is known at any given epoch of any given society and can therefore be treated as a constant magnitude. What changes is the value of this quantity. There are besides two other factors that enter into the determination of the value of labor power. One, the expenses of developing that power, which expenses vary with the mode of production. Uh, the other, it's natural diversity, the difference between the labor power of men and women, children, and adults, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. The employment of these different sorts of labor power and employment in which, in its turn, is made necessary by the mode of production makes a great difference in the cost of maintaining a family for the laborer and in the value of labor power of the adult male. Now, I wanted to point that out because those are all good things we should know by now. For sure. The only sentence left in that that this chapter is, both of these factors, however, excluded in the, the following investigation. Like, uh, by the way, this should obviously be be true by now. Uh, we're going to throw them out so that we can well, play we're going to play Because we need to play, exactly, because we need to play by their rules and show why they're wrong by their own rules before we show why they're wrong by, like, common sense. Yeah, yeah. We need, uh, to, we need to, before we say, hey, dumbass, we need to say, okay, <laughs> look, even your theories are dumb inside them. So yeah. here is, and again, this carries through, I think, through 25. Yeah. Uh, these are the list of assumptions that we play by. These are the rules that all of this chapter is dictated by. I think the first time we recorded this, I went very much in depth on that. I think I'm not going to do it quite as much this time because it's. I trust you all. You're all with me. Come on. Um, but do not take anything in these next chapters out of this context. You can't. You yeah. can't. And this is what people, a lot of people that hammer on Marx cheat and, and take things out of these chapters completely out of context. Here is the context. I assume, one, that commodities are sold at their value. Of course we know they're fucking not. Of yeah, course we know that. We know that, but he's playing by the rules. That's rule one. Two, that the price of labor power occasionally rises above its value, but never sinks below it. We know that's not true. Of course <laughs> the price of labor sinks below its value. Come on, exploitation exists, but we're going to assume it doesn't. Ah, where's my next one? On these assumptions, we already have found that the relative magnitudes of surplus value and the price of labor power are determined by three circumstances. Length of the working day, or the extensive magnitude of labor. Normal intensity of labor, or its intensive magnitude, whereby a given quantity of labor is extended in a given time. And the productivity of that labor, whereby the same quantity of labor yields in a given time a greater or smaller quantity of product, depending on the degree of development attained by the conditions. What tools are you using? Are your tools better? Cool, you can produce more. So, you've got yeah. three factors we're going to play I mean, with. Yeah, the rest you know, it's key that he was saying that only on those assumptions can you say the price of labor power. The value of labor power... Th those things obviously fit. The Ex length of the working day and the intensity of it are, are going and versus what's socially necessary in the intensity. We've already determined that determines the value. We're talking about price. So we have to say these things are perfect for the price to be right. Exactly. And so, again, three factors the whole time. Length of the working day. So how long are the hours? Normal intensity. How much How much? How many, how much effort can you milk out of it? Yeah. And the productivity of your labor. How many, how many innovations can you pop in to make your super worker as efficient as possible? 
the capitalist is going to play with these three variables in order to get surplus value, and he's about to list every possible permutation of them, and that's why this chapter gets dull. But yeah. this is important because this shows... People accuse Marx a lot of time of being so... Uh, 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 no, there's a structure, and it exists like this, and it's only like this, and it works like this, and it works in this, in, in this way only. And this is proof positive that no he acknowledges nuance to an obscene degree he knows that capitalism is not a, a single thing that you can pin your finger on and say it, it does it like this and it works like that there's 85 different ways that capitalism will exploit you and if you whack them all in one spot it pops up in another spot and does it a different way and it'll keep doing that and that's part of what makes it so goddamn insidious and 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 on the other hand for the people that that do the uh that's not real socialism, da-da-da. There's 85 different ways to do socialism yes. based on your social conditions because you're knocking down that whack-a-mole. Yes. Back, 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 back. Keep going. So just just keep whacking away. Don't say, you know, oh, China's not really socialist. And and, and, and what, oh, the worst one is the socialism's never really been tried in this world. Like, fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, so... Everyone um, try. Yeah, no, fuck you. Yeah. Um. So, get ready for Nathan to yell chapter headings at you. Okay. One! The length of the working day and the intensity of labor constant, the productivity of labor variable. So, working day and intensity are the exact same. Let's fuck with the productivity. <laughs> Assume that you fuck with the productivity and you can change value. There, done. I've explained that part to you. You win. <laughs> you have you have learned everything you need to learn. I have skipped eight pages, nine pages for you. Holy shit. Two. The length of the working day and the productivity of labor constant, intensity. Okay, so now we're changing the intensity switch. We're jacking that one up. We're working a lot harder. That's a way they can exploit you. I've now skipped eight, nine, <laughs> ten more pages, ten pages for you. Three, the productivity and the intensity of labor constant. To, hey, guys, have you figured it out? They just, they keep changing one variable each time. Uh, so if you make the day longer, perfect. Of course, you can't make the day longer. We've established that. But you can make a person be able to work more of the day by... You know, making their their life easier so that they can work longer for you. Again, it's the way they exploit you. We get that. We talked about it. Skipping simultaneous variations. Now we're gonna change two levers at one time, guys. Yes, Ricardo went through all of these, and that's why we have to keep squashing all of them. Again, this is your punishment if you don't believe him. But again, yeah. let's assume you change two of them: duration and productivity. Still, there's different ways they can exploit you. And again, it's just like that math. If you have four variables, how many different ways can you combine them? That's what he's doing here. He's showing yeah. every different way that you can combine these variables in order to exploit a person. If you're if you're curious about those things, there's not yeah. a bad reason. Read chapter 17. Yeah. It's really not as long as Nathan's yelling make it sound. No, I... It is I, very droll. It's droll. It's um, droll, and it's... it's and, and if you think Ricardo is smart... Uh, yeah, read chapter 17. Yeah. It sucks to be you. This you, is important. You brought that you upon to. yourself. But again, it's, it's it's one of those things that if you're on board, chapter 17 is like a, oh, yeah. duh, like, why duh, are you wasting duh, your time? duh, duh, duh. Okay. Um, so, so that's what we're going to do because we don't want to board people. Exactly. So we have now gotten through chapter 17. Yes. That was an effective way. Hi, guys. We're moving <laughs> right along. Chapter 18. Chapter 18. Different and formula for the rate of surplus. Oh, goody, guys. We've got to more formula. Yes. There's math equations and graphs in this one. Yes. So he says surplus value over variable capital equals surplus value over the value of labor power equals surplus labor over necessary labor. Okay, Guys, it's all the, the same ratio. None of you understood that. None of you heard that. None of you are doing the, are, are charting this out in your brain. If you want to see this, you need to go look at chapter 18. Okay. Because it's literally, it makes sense when you're looking at it. 
but trying to explain this in an audio context is not going to happen. Just trust that not only did he explain all the different ways that you can manipulate it, but in chapter 18, he made the math formulas for it so that you can do it on paper. Okay, so let's just say the final three formulas he's got, okay? Okay. So the first one that he's already said is surplus labor over over necessary labor is, is the same as surplus value of variable capital. Yes. Okay, so your extra labor over whatever labor you have to have, okay? Yes. It's the same as surplus value of variable capital. So, like, if you have to work six hours to, to make some value and you work 12 hours, you know, then you have six over six is one. That's your S over V. And he uses that equation in different parts of the book. The other one, uh, if he says, you know, the surplus labor over the working day, okay? Mm -hmm. um, now he's, that's going to be the same as the surplus product over the total product because your labor and your working day are going to be transferred into an average product because we're looking at congealed labor. There's going to be an average product coming out of that. And he says the third formula, which he is occasionally already anticipated, okay, is surplus value over the value of labor power is the same as unpaid labor over paid labor. That's the one I really think is important. Now, that's interesting. Do you have a third? Is there... In your version, is there an is it is it just surplus value over the value of labor power equals unpaid labor over paid labor? Well, it's 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 surplus value over the value of labor power equals surplus labor okay. over necessary labor. Just making sure okay, just yeah, making but sure. That's, that's it's just walking through. Exactly. It's he's, just reducing the equation. He's reducing the equation. So he's reducing it for you, reducing it for you. The the important part is where he starts and, and where, where he ends. Okay, just making sure it wasn't that fundamental Yeah, there. the middle one is just for translation. So all three of these, he's done three evolutions. I've only named mm -hmm. two. But the two are what's important, that's why he's done the three evolutions. So you're really gonna understand that unpaid labor over paid labor is gonna be, you know, the rate of, of surplus value. Okay, and that's that's important to know. It's important to know, but it's super boring. Okay, it's super boring. I'm sorry, it's super boring. Again, th there are two people here for a reason. Everybody comes at this from a different angle. That particular part of it does not make my uh, my dick wiggle in any meaningful way. Okay. Um. So there if you're into it though, chapter 18 is your jam, guys. It's not it, long. It's very. It's, short. No, it's very short. It's very, very short, short, but it's a lot of math. And I uh, intentionally picked a degree that required me to take as little math as humanly possible. <laughs> F math. And uh, if we do combine this with Chapter 16, that will be the end of probably that episode. I so. think that's a reasonable thing, and I think we definitely that's, would. Yeah. would the, the combining will have happened. Yes. You see how the sausage is made, guys. So uh, so that is definitely our, our condensed Chapter 16 and 17, where 16 took up 45 minutes and 17 took up 11. Yes. Uh, that's... This is why we're doing it for you. And 18. We did 18 in there, too. We did 18. We even yeah. well, you got a bonus round, guys. You got two chapters in 10 minutes. That's, that's, that's right. what you call the lightning round. <laughs> and that's a good thing because we're moving on to part six next, guys. And that's fun. Now we're getting into wages. Wages. Which is so how we, you make your money. So yes. next, next time you hear us, we're going to be talking about how you get paid. Yay. Bye.